0: Hey, my name is Akash Dakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're gonna interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the world of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Stealth Oveng, who is a musician, vocalist, songwriter, and touring member of the band The Lumineers. Stealth is a multi-instrumentalist who plays piano, keyboards, accordion, mandolin, guitar, percussion, and even does backing vocals and lead vocals on his own projects. And speaking of making his own music, he also does that while having a successful touring career alongside his wife, Dorota Shuda. In this interview, we talk about what it takes to have a sustainable music career, touring, playing shows with tens of thousands of people, creating music with his wife and what that dynamic is like, as well as playing shows with just a couple dozen people in the audience the night after a giant performance. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Stealth Ulving. I'm curious about, we actually have a very shared kind of habit. When you go to a new city, I remember hearing in another interview, you go to a new city, maybe when you're touring or just traveling, you go to the library. Yeah. Right, you go explore various libraries. We both do that. And I thought that was so cool. I didn't know anyone else who did that. Is that because it's kind of a non-musical, detached way to kind of explore a city? Is it kind of a way to separate your brain from it? Why is it that you do that?
1: You know, I started after visiting dozens of libraries, somebody recommended that I start a, an Instagram page, the library library, it's called. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd go to a new city. I'd go find kind of an old or unique library there kind of as an excuse to just uh, almost dogmatic excuse to get me out of my hotel room.
0: Yeah,
1: it started out as just something I was doing casually. But I think by making like a direct goal out of it, I met a guy who was traveling with the Beauty and the Beast musical. And he, and he was uh, one of the clocks Nick Cogsworth, the clock. Mm-hmm. And so he made a goal in every city to go find like a clock tower or a famous clock in this city. But he was like above all, even though it like tied in with what he kind of did, just like, Gave him a goal for the day to keep him from just turning into like a sludge of hotel depression, which I think can come on easy. You're just Netflixing over and over. And so it's just this goal to get out. But then all of the other things that I would love doing, I, would, I love going to concerts on nights off. I, I love going and seeing like weird museums, all that stuff. Sure. But there's something about a library, like you said, that is so um, all encompassing of silence. There's like an echo of silence, like you can hear the hiss of just nothing happening, and maybe like a real distant cough. And it is truly like a nice split dichotomy from playing later that night, you know, a show to say 20,000 people that are yelling at you much louder than you're yelling at them. Right?
0: (laughs) Right. Do you have other things that you use to kind of detach from the whole music thing? Because I know it's really important to have, you know, hobbies or things that don't make it so that every minute of your life is sucked in by this one thing. So you don't become that person who turns into sludge. Are there other things you focus on to help you stay kind of sane?
1: Sure. I like to, you know, I like to read. I like adventures up hiking and biking and stuff. So I like going on like jaunts, but so often you're in cities, you know, and it's really hard to get To nature, I like to try to swim in natural bodies of water, and I do that almost every day here, where I live in the desert of California. I just swim, and I think it keeps the refresh going. And and yeah, definitely harder to do that stuff in in cities, though. So I think that those spaces of just like solitude kind of come out of. uh, Oh, and I and I'm not really big on. You can find that same silence in churches, but I I, after a while was like I don't want to keep going to churches in the daytime just to like absorb the silence yeah yeah um and going outside you know what i mean just finding these places of almost worship is so hippie i think to say i'm just going and sitting in trees but it kind of feels like that you know it's like a reset
0: yeah there's this peace there's like this sustained feeling of peace within those sorts of places and you feel it like it is it is impossible to ignore exactly
1: And, and there's cities you know you can go to new york city and you can go to a park and you can go to a park where you see nobody And that's crazy in these huge cities like that. They have these enormous parks. But otherwise, it's pretty rare, I think, to find that much solitude in a a city on tour.
0: Totally. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays, if you Google you, uh, it's very easy to see like, okay, here's the tours he's been on. Here's the albums he's releasing, all sorts of good stuff, like tons of great music out there, which is awesome to see. I'm very curious, though, because it's hard to find for most artists what that transition point was. Like, when did you start? thinking about, oh, I play all these instruments, I can sing or whatever abilities you had first. When did you start taking it really seriously to the point where it could potentially become a profession? Like, was there a pivotal moment where you said, ah, this is for me, I'm going to be a full time musician?
1: Uh, I guess it it all felt accidental, which is super, uh, you know, it's that's rooted in a lot of luck. And I acknowledge that and privilege and stuff like that. But I I truly was like, I lived in a house with a lot of friends and we were having a lot of music there, like a, a punk house, essentially. People playing in the basement constantly. We just made our living room into a stage as well. Started building stages outside, that kind of thing. And we just were all encompassed by the passing music scene that we started meeting so many people. And though I never had like made a plan to play music on my own, when somebody was like, oh, you play, I didn't even play mandolin, but he was like, hey, will you like learn a couple things and, and cover for this dude on this thing? So I started doing that. I jumped on a tour with a woman, Laura Goldhammer, who uh, from Denver, playing accordion with her. And that was like the first time I'd ever toured with anyone and met met a bunch of this Denver music scene. I was living in Fort Collins at the time. That's where this punk house was essentially. But and it was an old turn of the century schoolhouse. So it just had huge vaulted ceilings. It was essentially a venue that had some, like, sleeping quarters upstairs. So it was really easy, that said, to transition into just, like, traveling and being around all the people that I'd been meeting and hitting up people in Pittsburgh and being like, hey, remember you played at my house last year? Now I'm in a band. And they'd set stuff up. And it was kind of just an excuse to travel. I think learning an accordion was kind of an excuse to, like, travel and being able to maybe make money on the road and and just play on the street. And then... Even when the Lumineers had come to town, they were like, you know, how do you make money? How do you how do you stay just a musician in this town? I was like, I busk. I go to Boulder. And so the first times I was playing with those guys after meeting them a few months later, we started going to Boulder, playing music on the street early, early on. I don't know if any human probably paid attention to us or cared were remembered but if there's a human out there like thank you for stopping and watching this little band you know performing on the street corner and then all of a sudden yeah stuff just uh starts moving and you get used to it but i think street performing is part of that performance aspect that i was able to lock in before a lot of my colleagues who were playing who are better musicians uh maybe more connected but i really had a knack and enjoyed The grabbing of humans. That sounds worse than it is. (laughs) Uh, You know, they're they're reaching out and just shaking people by their collars and being like, listen to us, damn it. We need money for oysters. We'd always buy oysters (laughs) right after. We'd busk outside of this cafe in Boulder. And as soon as we made like the 25 bucks for the like flat of half dozen oysters or whatever, we'd go and our band would just eat a bunch of oysters and then we'd go out and oysters in Boulder, though. I don't know. We never got
0: sick. (laughs) Yeah, landlocked oysters. I don't know. It's <laughs> risky.
1: But that's how, yeah, just, and then all of a sudden we were playing, you know, we were at South by Southwest. We were surprised to see all these people at our shows and we were like, what the heck? They must be confused or they must be waiting for the band that's coming after us. Like that was our attitude about it. Hmm. And then we were opening for a band who really fun band uh, called kopecki Family Band. And people were leaving after we'd played and we were like, something's not right here. But even then it just felt like We were behind ourselves as far as like how quickly the music was spreading at that point. And so there was kind of no turning back at that point. I was like, guys, I just wanted to be a street performer.
0: (laughs) So can we actually talk about getting that gig with the Lumineers? Because I know it involved MySpace and just responding to messages, right?
1: Yes. And I I think, I don't know, it reminds me of that movie. um, What's the one with the Africans and the bottle falls from the sky? Oh, I know the one you're talking about. Crazy, crazy something. But it, it basically, like, there's this effect of just being like, this is my belief now. This their belief system based around this Coke bottle or whatever. And me, after, uh, I think, responding to this Lumineers MySpace, after that, I was like, this is my belief system. The best way to end up in any band is just, like, say yes to everything. Like, because it worked so well for me, because that became my, like, mantra of a sort. I've found myself telling it to a lot of people. And I think, truly, again, so much of it's based on luck. Timing privilege, because we all know so many musicians who are incredible who maybe never got the same opportunities to show the same like level of expertise that they have, mm-hmm. but for me, it truly came down to I think just being like down to say yes to things, and since holding to that belief, I think things have gotten better and better, and I've enjoyed myself a lot more by just saying yes to things I want to do and no to things that I don't, but even yes to things that I might want to do or just trying more things which is hard because so much of music is so much about pivoting yourself against the exposure that something might be worth. And that's a really tricky form of payment to consider because me saying yes to playing a show, you know, setting up a show with this band that had just come from New York, Lumineers, and maybe it was low stakes, but I didn't know this band and it ended up working out well. And had it not, I guess everything would have been Just as fine, but it's not like we would have been making money or they would have made money. So I also think there was something in common that they had to be like, sure, we'll come play this house show that you have going on, even though I was like, I don't think there's gonna be any money in it. It's just gonna be a party. And that's where they met. So many musicians were there that night at that show that quickly I think springboarded their permanence of a sort in the Denver music scene. And so that was how that basically came to be. It's just we became fast friends after, you know, them writing on MySpace and uh, setting up a show at this loft apartment in, in Lodo, Denver.
0: And it was a natural natural friendship, too. It easy. It's it's very cool to hear considering there's a big shift, or I imagine there's a big shift from you started off you know, busking and they were kind of asking you for advice on how they can consistently make money off of this. And then, you know, maybe a year later or several years later, you're touring all over the world, you're playing with giant bands, you're touring with people like U2, all that sort of stuff. Speaking of the money side of things, what changed? Like what kind of in your mentality changed about the money side of things? Did anything change? Did you have to think about things differently from busking to being a touring musician?
1: You know, it was was sweet because at the time that they, you know, we stayed friends for a few years while they were starting the Lumineers and I was playing in this other band, Dovkins. And we're at a bar one night playing shows together. Both of our bands are playing and they were like, you play bass, right? And I was like, "Eh, it's like guitar, but like, Theoretically easier, not necessarily true. But again, I was like, sure, let me play with you. I love y'all, and I'd love to play with you guys. So I I started playing bass with them. But I was also like, I don't want this to take away from my other band that was happening at that time, Dovekins. And they were like, okay, well, we'll pay you fifty bucks a show. Which at the time, like, I'd never been like really promised money to play music. It was like if you had a good show, you could make thousands of dollars, and if you had a bad show, you could owe them for the parking and the drinks and the lack of drink tickets that you had, all this stuff. So it was so just hit or miss airing on the side of miss, right? Cause we were just saying yes to everything and playing every bar in town and all that. But that time that they, I think offered to pay me 50 bucks a show, it was only a few weeks into tour of me playing bass, relatively subpar. Labels were hitting them up and I felt really, I don't know. I, it wasn't really my place, but I, I was happy to be there. Of course. I realized it was like the only money they were making, they were they were giving to me. Because they, Wes, Chair, Neela, that core group, I think, were, you know, they were investing. They they really believed in this thing. And they said, you know, we'll pay this guy who doesn't necessarily believe believe in us in the same way. He's He's got his other gig. But they were making no money. And there were times where I feel like I was, I also was on food stamps then, which is interesting to recall. But being like, I can get us all, some grub and like we can make food at this high. I, know I have some friends in Nashville. We can stay at their house. We'd stay at this house with like no heat. And I remember almost wanting to like pitch this money that they were giving back into the band or, you know, this food. It felt very communal. And it was really hard to feel like, despite how like separate I was at the time by being paid as a side guy, they're really sweet and involving me. And so the money kept growing and they kept paying me more. Then that was the first time I ever had money in my life it was like more more than like $2000 ever in my bank account. I like worked, you know, at a ice cream shop through high school and I never even was able to save that much money. I saved up all this money after that first Lumineers tour and I bought a Sprinter van so I could tour solo. And it was interesting seeing like I can live in it, you know, when I'm off tour. I had all these ideas about it. And got this van that still runs like a champion. 6 years ago. It's almost at 200,000 miles and I uh, just dumped the savings into that first time i i saved up money and then the way that you know that van when i've done all these other tours with secret pluto band and uh with my own solo stuff and other bands uh, spirits of the red city is a band i've traveled with with this van it turns out it was a business investment i'm proud of myself for buying a van and not just buying more instruments which is the Usual, obvious choice, right? Of any musician that starts making money as they end up at Chicago Music Exchange or something like that, and then they just lose it all.
0: It's always tempting. It's like candy, right? You always, if there's always something newer and shinier to kind of quote unquote invest in, maybe you don't need a new guitar, but it, this one looks so nice. Right. It might as well. It's very easy to kind of fall into that.
1: And it's funny that the, the instruments that I play are all new in the sense that they're like inexpensive. I have one old acoustic guitar, Gibson J50, and everything else is relatively like I like this company, The Lore, but they make newer guitars, hollow bodies that are based off of Gibson's. I don't know if you can see that green one on the wall. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I I haven't spent a lot of money on nice instruments yet.
0: I think that's really important to hear because I think, especially kind of people who are just getting their feet wet, just starting out. The temptation is always the gear lust, right? That is so common for any music sound person. And it's kind of comforting to hear someone who's a full-time musician being like, "Eh, it's not kind of your main focus is spending money on tons of the nicest imaginable stuff that you can buy." Sure,
1: and I do I do have a wide spread of stuff. Like I have a lot of instruments because I I play a lot of instruments, and I do like to where I ha- could have one nice guitar. I have like these three cheap different keyboards. You know, I have a Rhodes, I have a Wurlitzer, but they were I finally found them cheap on Craigslist, and I have um you know, a cheap clarinet and a cheap saxophone, cheap trumpets, like all these instruments that I like to play. I have cheap versions that basically just do the trick. Do you know the trick about the um, pop filter? No. You can rubber band or strap a pencil to the front of a microphone if you're right up on it. <laughs> it works pretty well as a pop filter, you know, a DIY hack. And I'm like, why don't I just <laughs> buy a fucking pop guard? Well, I'm looked on Amazon there, you know, they're like less than 20 bucks. Right. And it can attach to my mic stand. And that would be so simple. And for whatever reason. I still have this damn pencil. <laughs> I don't know. I get yeah, I get stuck in that mentality of thriftiness, I think, because I was in it for so long. Mm-hmm. Busking too, you know, it's like the money wasn't great, but then sometimes it would just be this, you just have to be like so good about the next weekend that you could be out there or maybe there'd be, a, especially in Colorado, a week of snow and mm. you just could not play music. I mean, it was like a year and a half or two years of my life was kind of the only source of income that I had. I have this thrifty mentality I think that I'm stuck in and then find myself cursing it when something breaks or you know I don't know. So there's a there's a balance, there's a middle
0: ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when you kind of like have that transition over time, now kind of where is your head at money wise cuz you know touring is for now not a thing and it hasn't been for a little bit. Where's your brain at when it comes to finances being a musician? Nowadays, like what kind of focuses do you have on income streams? What do you like to do? Sure, I'm
1: just learning. You know, I'm learning about um publishing. What a big mess of a world that is! It's amazing. And I have a dear friend, musician brit Ashford Trotter, who started a publishing company and works on writing and stuff. And she makes her own music, and her music's beautiful. But I didn't realize how deep uh, of a hole you can go into of just like collecting royalties for stuff that you've put out there into the world, and how to put the stuff out there in new and creative ways. I think Spotify's in some ways, obviously a blessing in so many ways, it's a curse, but we also as musicians, I think get very stuck on being like, that is the way to release music. And it's the way that sucks. Like those 0.0004 cents or whatever that you get per stream. Surely there's more zeros in there. Everybody curses it. And then I'm like, sure, but it can't be the only way. And they're like, well, it is like, if you can get onto a playlist, it's the only way. And now they're like, TikTok. It's the only way. And there's still beautiful ways to make music that pay you back. And I'm such a, I mean, I'm so cheesy about it, but I'm like also making a really good record feels like payment to me, right? After having just finished a record with my wife and this band that we made up, Heavy Gus. I listen to the record regularly, just listen to it and go, fuck, this is good. If we didn't make this, I would like listen to this, but I don't have to pay anyone to keep listening to it. It's like, uh, yeah, nice payment to just create something that you love with little resources and just the space and time I'm just sitting in which quarantine gave so much of so I think I'm focusing more on these things that when the, when it all comes back into play when music's back I really want to be a little more proactive at least about my own because I've just always self released, self-managed put up my own stuff at my own my own timeline and I just want to be better about my own management publishing in that world and I've been learning so much more about it but it's complicated.
0: Very. I'm curious when you're working with your wife, then, you know, anyone who's working with a significant other, it feels like the ups are higher and the downs might even be lower considering you're in each other's space all the time. There might be arguments. Some may be more personal than just music. You know, things can come up that you wouldn't necessarily have if it's someone who you barely know that you're just doing some studio sessions with. What is that like? What is it like working with your wife on a brand new project? And what are the upsides, downsides?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've made music in different bands and it's always been a little easier if, say, we're both playing in a band that we are not the band leader of to just both be side guys, you know? In a band, Spirits of the Red City that we were playing with, that was, that was the case. And I think that was... Touring with that band again is kind of how we re-fell in love. We met on tour 10 years prior and only about five years ago, 2015, like solidified our long-distance crushes. <laughs> And so it helps that the base of our love life is based around music and touring. And then I've played music in her bands. She's played in my bands. This is the first time that we kind of created a collection of songs that are in so many ways about each other, but also about like being away from each other and longing. It's really hard. And sure, we will 100% argue about like how to promote this thing or like a photo moment or something like this that is bound to happen in anyone even if you're not dating them and especially if you're dating someone it's bound to happen arguments are so inevitable with everyone one thing in order to be a successful relationship we've really gotten better at arguing so we are at least more skilled in working through shit but in the end everything kind of comes back to this place of we're singing these songs that are actually about like our love for each other our longing How hard it is to be like on tour while she's at home or she's uh working she works as a scientist most of the time half the time now all the time because of the pandemic luckily she's had this job the whole time but yeah a lot of songs are about just missing the shit out of each other and so it's really hard to stay mad at somebody if you're singing this song that came truly you know from the heart that's just about missing them
0: i love that that's very sweet it's wholesome it's, uh, it's very heartwarming to hear. And uh, considering you, you seem like the type who's always making stuff. You're always doing something music related, whether it be releasing your own stuff, touring with the Lumineers or various other bands, making stuff with your wife. Is there self-motivation involved? Is it completely natural? Or you just kind of always need to be making stuff. What's, where's your headspace when it comes to the actual inspiration of making?
1: You know, I, I, really, I found that I really need uh, social discipline. Like, I need a show coming up. If I have time that I know is going to exist, that I know I should oh, I could plan a tour around then, I should, you know, create some new material, create a fun way to do it. I mean, Lumineers would be on tour for three months. We'd have three weeks off. And I tried to book a tour in the Northwest with an orchestra, you know, an eight-piece orchestra. And that was my idea of a fun, relaxing time off before we went back on the road, um, was just setting up a tour with even more people. So the timing definitely like is a draw for that. But then also the social aspect. If I'm writing new songs, I really like to have somebody that I can be sharing it with, including my wife, you know, when we kind of challenge each other to do that. At the beginning of quarantine, I set out to write a song a day and I thought it was going to be a lot shorter. Like all of us, I was like, great, three months, I'm going to write a song a day. And I got to 100 songs and I was like, I'm good. I had a friend doing it with me the whole time. And then one friend would be like, I'm over this. And I'd be like, that's cool. I'd find a new friend and be like, hey, you want to do a song a day for a few weeks? That would maybe go on for a month and a half. And then uh, they'd drop off, find a couple other friends. So it really helped me to have discipline and kind of, um, it's not really a competitive edge, but just like a comparative or mutual sharing. Like it helped to share something and then also to like focus attention on someone else's piece that they wrote. This guy that I play with a lot, I, I joked that he's my mentor. He's only a couple of years older than me, but this guy, Nick Jaina is his name. And he and I have done a lot of tours, writing projects together. And it's interesting seeing, you know, he very much wants to like focus energy and create a very deep masterpiece. And I think I'm a lot better at springing something off the cuff, coming up with some quick lyrics, writing a song. And then the next day being like, that was trash, and then never going back to it again. And so for me, a lot of it is fecundity of a sort, just constant, constant attempts, and 10% of the stuff that I write. If that makes like a final cut
0: that I continue to explore. Mm, So when it comes to those kind of explorations, you're, you know, let's say you're working on your own solo stuff or stuff with your wife, how do you know? Is it just what your gut tells you? Like, how do you know what to kind of follow through on?
1: Yeah, it's all, it is a lot of gut. Or I'll share it with someone. And if they even show, you know, after writing that many songs and sharing it with people, it's pretty easy to tell a sincere excitement about a piece. Someone's <laughs> like, nice, good. Yeah. And you know, you're like, good. I wasn't going to play that song anymore <laughs> either. So it's good that it's gone. And then you, yeah, then you roll with something and then I'll write. Dozens of verses, mm. sad-eyed lady of the lowland style, eleven-minute Bob Dylan song, and I'm just amazed at the boldness of him not deleting all of these long verses that, to me, are just like weird, psychedelic, meaningless, just going and going. Mm. And that's how I write songs still. And then I'll so I'll play them to dorota my wife, and she'll be like, "What the hell are you talking about in this verse?" I was like, "Yeah, I don't know. I was going <laughs> to delete the verse anyway." So that's good. And then I do. Then the song's only five minutes long. Then I still have to cut
0: shit out. So there's an interesting kind of back and forth you have in in your career because, you know, you do your own stuff. You have several bands play with your wife and you also play with a huge band, the Lumineers. They have, you know, quite a bit of success as well. And you tour as yourself, you tour with them. Is there any kind of weirdness going back and forth between playing, you know, a big show To a small one on your own, you know, maybe you play a big show with 20,000 people in the audience with the Lumineers and then just you under your own name, go on tour next time and it's a smaller show and then you go back to playing a huge show. Is there any weirdness? Does that feel odd? What's that transition back and forth like?
1: Um, You know, I'll go I'll go back and forth night after night. Like I'll have days off on tour in between arena shows and I'll play in a coffee shop filled with 30 people just because a friend in a town is like, hey. Uh, My buddy owns a coffee shop and he wants you to play there. And I wouldn't have set anything up mainly because to me, it it, it gives me a lot of anxiety to set up a show on a night off because who knows what can happen. And then you end up prioritizing Lumineers and you're like, sorry, sweet friend at a coffee shop, but I have to cancel Mm -hmm. last minute. And then I feel like they're like, Hey, this guy from the Lumineers is going to come play. And everyone's like, you (laughs) lie. So I really only like setting up shows mid tour that I can set up very last minute. And that, inevitably ends up being really small like the more people sitting crisscross applesauce the better just sitting on the ground like i love that vibe Mm. to see i mean imagine playing when you can just see everybody's faces there's such a vulnerability because you can really see again if somebody's like bored out of their minds if they're looking at their phone there are more people looking at their phone during a lumineers set like at one time than have ever come to any one of my shows you know what i mean yeah but then if I play a show to 30 people, 50 people, 100 people, you can see everybody there. You can grab them. You can draw them in. And this attention. Mm-hmm. Lumineers is like that, obviously, on a larger scale. If there's 20,000 people there and you have 19,500 of their attention, that's a fucking mm-hmm. miracle. That's an amazing night. That's great. You you said this even when we were playing for U2. We were opening for U2. And it was daylight out. We're playing in these football stadiums. So it's it just feels... Awkward is suddenly you can just see the mass of people that are so disinterested in what Mm. you're doing. I would say probably 10% of the crowd has filled up the stadium. You know, everybody's still parking and getting in. And of that 10%, maybe only 10% of them are watching you. But that still ends up being like 9,500 people. That's like the capacity of Red Rocks. Mm. 1% of of a U2 show is like the capacity of Red Rocks. And that's awesome. So it's just kind of like trying not to think too hard about that scale and just absorbing the people that are there and loving it. And really, for me, relishing in a small show that feels like 99% of the people there are right there with you.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the feeling is you know worth it. Because I, I know a lot of musicians who would feel like they're regressing, right? If they play a big show and then the next one is less, right? it it feel like, oh, I'm failing, I'm I'm moving backwards. But to you, I like your mindset of your goal is just kind of having people there with you. It doesn't necessarily matter too much about, oh, it's 20,000 people versus 10, right? That's really great. I really like that. So when you are kind of in this space, I think something about you that I really like is you come across as someone who's very, just a consummate professional as a musician, you have a good head on your shoulders, you really seem to care about what you do. There's no ego to you at all, like zero arrogance, which is great to see. And Eh. eh, well, as far as I can tell. (laughs) So I'm very curious, like from from your perspective, as a pro who's been doing this for a while, what do you think a good professional musician does? Like, what are the traits that a good pro has? Thank you for saying all that. I appreciate that.
1: I play with this guy in the Lumineers, Byron Isaacs, who is the most professional musician I've ever played with. He's a little older than all of us. He played with Levon Helm up until Levon Helm's death. He played with uh, this band, Olabel, which was his band with Levon Helm's daughter, Amy Helm. And he has his own solo projects as well. He's constantly playing with different bands, taking on projects. And one, I'm amazed to see it sometimes that he also just gets so frustrated Man, I took on this thing and I'm sitting here and I'm struggling through this, you know, these bass parts. Why did I agree to doing this Grateful Dead cover show? That kind of stuff. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You are the most incredible musician. So and then backstory, they met him. They were recording. The dudes were recording, just laying down the basics up in um, Woodstock for the album Cleopatra. And Last minute, they needed a a bassist to come up and try some stuff that played upright bass, but also some electric bass. And he he was like, sure, I'll be up there. I've never heard of this band, but I've got the day off, so I'll come. Had he been booked that day, he wouldn't have come up. You know what I mean? But he had the day off and he was like, yes, I'll do it. Learned the parts on the train without a bass, just listening through them, writing down everything that he could hear. Showed up on the two-hour train ride up to New York and knew every song in a two-hour train ride. Learned them by ear. and. Most of the takes that he did were just like kept and perfect and beautiful. And I heard about him. I was like, they were like, stealth, this guy, he showed up, he did all these, you know, he just laid down these parts. He's such a professional. His spirit in the studio is really humble and real sweet. And I was like, well, it's going to suck trying to tour with this nerd. You know what I mean? Because anyone with that uh, level of discipline, I'm like, surely they're going to just be terrible on stage. And then playing shows with him fills me with so much joy. He's so spirited. He's so energetic. And even though he's like, you know, a few years my senior, I'm constantly striving to get to that level of musicianship. And I think everybody has that. We all have like something we, you know, everybody can keep growing. But I really admire the ability to navigate both of those worlds, which is, you know, something I'm learning now as well. The studio world as well as the live world, where so much of my musical upbringing is only in the live world so I think where I find myself backing off of your very kind compliments is I'm still I still feel like such a rookie sometimes Mm -hmm. when it comes to the studio and it is so expansive too I mean the amount of things and the amount of like skills and engineering and uh, mic placement Jesus you you could read forums for days on mic placement and it turns out it's important But again, you know, I coming back to the the idea of me just having a lot of trash gear and using a pencil as a pop guard. I also recorded an entire album on my cell phone using GarageBand, and I think that was like one of my favorite albums I've ever made. I keep meaning to put it on Spotify, but it's on Bandcamp if you want to check it out. It is it's lo-fi, obviously, but it's funny. And I only released it on cassette tape for a while, but I really liked just leaning in to the shabbiness of it all, I think. Mm. You're almost forced to be super creative with those limitations. I don't know. Do you know the story about Keith Jarrett, the yes, jazz pianist?
0: In the, in the Cologne concert, yeah.
1: Yeah, and he made this best-selling solo jazz record of all time, and he made it with a piano that was out of tune, and, you know, obviously I'm not making the best-selling album made on a cell phone of all time, but when you're given these limitations that I feel like I can fill those shoes a lot easier, and that's, I think, where, like, my strong... Musicianship can come from is I do feel like I thrive in a smaller box.
0: Nice, very nice. Yeah, I'm, I like that kind of that vibe you have. Is is working with with what you got and making it making it happen instead of you know a lot of people. It's very easy to complain, right? It's very easy to just think like, eh, I can't do it because X, like whatever reason you can give it. So it's good to hear. Now to wrap up, I have a few kind of final questions for you that I ask everybody. And for the first one, uh, what right now are you really focused on learning or what are you really curious about? Could be music or non-music.
1: I'm always very wrapped up in sciences that I I like. Dorota, my wife, she's a marine biologist. And if I go with her on trips and field trips and stuff like that that she does, I lean into it really hard. And had I ever not become a musician and had the discipline to even pass the community college that I tried to go, go to for a year, I would have... Really tried to go into science, but yeah, one album I wrote was almost entirely about Carl Sagan and the expansive universe, and then you know the last one I wrote was a little more pop centric and but i'm I'm back right now to just like diving full on into reading Carl Sagan books and um uh, Robin Wall uh Annie Dillard, and all these naturalists so I just love diving into biology world. My friend is visiting right now, and she's helping decorate a baby room. I have a baby on the way. I, I don't know if you knew.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. But I, we were like, what should we put like a big, fun, colorful thing on the wall? And I was like, let's make a cell. <laughs> so that's what I leaned. into.
0: That's amazing. I love that. Now, uh, as kind of the next question, this can actually change a lot, especially considering have a baby on the way. But When you first started out in music and you can define that starting point whenever you want, it could be when you're in Colorado, it could be when you're on like the first tour you ever did or even before all of that, whatever starting point you want to define when you're first starting out, how did you kind of define the idea of success, whatever that meant to you and how has that changed over time and what does that mean to you now, especially you're going to be a dad soon? Sure. Yeah,
1: that is complicated because to me, being paid for that freedom to travel Mm -hmm. was a lot of it. For the first time, I was like, wow, I get to like go to Prague and they're paying me to do that and I get to explore Mm -hmm. this city, you know, that kind of thing. But I've been doing that since I was busking, you know, I was able to travel and it's stupid and maybe even arrogant to say that like as it's expanded, I keep being like, well, I've made it. This is it. Like I've reached the top and it just keeps on coming. And now this adventure with, yeah, having a child and exploring the world from both directions where I'm learning and maybe in this position of teaching, which has never really come of me, then I feel like uh, I'm mm. getting pulled a little from both ends. And I'm really curious to see how I handle that. If anything, again, I'm, I'm going to under pressure and with limited options, I'm going to do great.
0: Right. It sounds like that's your that's your element. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So last question before we wrap up, uh, where can people find you? Drop all the album names, all the links, social media, anything that you want to promote?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, since we're talking about all the, you know, ragtag means of making music, and since I (laughs) shit talk Spotify for a bit, which I'm sure this maybe this will end up on Spotify, look up my stuff on Bandcamp. I think it's a really great resource for DIY musicians, and I think everybody should use it. But uh, yeah, Stealth Alvang on Bandcamp. All of my albums are on there, especially this one that I made on my cell phone that I put onto cassette tape that I then put onto Bandcamp. I keep stubbornly not wanting to put onto Spotify. <laughs> Too sacred. But yeah, go on Spotify, check out the music on there. And then soon, this record with my wife under the band name Heavy Gus will come out. I think the album will be called Notions. We don't know if we'll ever find a label or if we're just going to release it like we do everything, but check out heavy Gus and then check out all of my friends bands and everyone that I love and talk about and sing
0: about online too, while you're at it. I love it. I love it. You're such a wholesome guy. You have a great vibe. Amazing to see that new music industry. And it's, it was great chatting with you. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thanks Akash. I appreciate that. Of course. Anytime. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And considering I work in the world of video game music and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound B I Z pod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects. They'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.